Hi there, friends, and welcome to this episode of Burn Your Draft, the podcast exploring the Reed Senior thesis process and experience. I'm your host, Amelie Andreas, and today we'll be talking with Ethan Sandweiss about how watching a world's most dangerous roads video can lead to an 120-page thesis centered within the longest war in American history. We will be dealing with some pretty heavy topics in regards to the USA-Afghanistan conflict today. So if that isn't your cup of tea, you may want to fast forward through some sections or check out another of our amazing episodes. If you're interested in how to support those dealing with the aftermath of this conflict, or if you want another perspective on what's going on, check out the links in the description of this episode. All right, take it away, Ethan. My name is Ethan Sandweiss. I'm from Bloomington, Indiana, and I was a history major at Reed College. My senior thesis was called Highway to Hell. America, Afghanistan, and the Fragmented State. So obviously right now, that's a pretty pretty topical thesis. Um, we've got a lot of definitely interesting stuff going on in that region, um, both with like recently pulling out troops from Afghanistan and also with the anniversary of 9-11 happening. Uh, as we're recording this podcast only a couple of days ago, um, as our resident history major who has done a little bit of a more in-depth research into this topic. Can you give us like the quick version of like what history is kind of surrounding your thesis and also this moment that we're in right now? Sure. So my thesis covers a period that really begins in the 1760s and ends around 2005. Um, so it, it doesn't go up to the present day, but I'm looking at several distinct periods in Afghanistan's history. Country basically exists um, because the Russian Empire in the north, um, the British in the southeast, and uh, Iran in the west had this kind of no man's land in between them and just sort of agreed upon recognizing this as a country. Um, so a lot of other states exist because there's a strong nationalist movement. Afghanistan kind of existed because there just wasn't an imperial power there. Mm. Um, and so what develops in terms of Afghan nationality and the Afghan state um, is really an evolution of the consequences of 18th century imperialism. Wow. Yeah, it's it's always surprising just to find out like what extent imperialism has just impacted almost every single country you can think of. Um, yeah, my roommate is taking a couple courses uh, in like the poli-sci department on imperialism and they have to do a quiz uh, where you have to uh, pick out the locations of like a couple places that were impacted by just British imperialism on the map. And it's definitely easier to pick a country that was impacted than one that wasn't. Absolutely. Especially in Afghanistan's case, you know, because Afghanistan was not administrated as a British colony, but because British had interests in South Asia um, and especially Pakistan, mm -hmm. there was a lot of British meddling in Afghan affairs. Um, and this continues after British decolonization. Pakistan, uh, which neighbors Afghanistan, is always playing a very active role in the country's affairs. There's a lot of resentment in Afghanistan towards that. Uh, and that instability, especially of that border between Pakistan and Afghanistan, which Afghanistan, by the way, has never recognized, or uh, the country considers much of Western Pakistan to be part of their country. That border has never been recognized. So there's kind of definitely a lot of uh, interesting history going around around like uh, this period you're talking about that your thesis is set in. 
how did that kind of end up manifesting itself in your thesis? Like what's kind of the bulk of what you're writing about and trying to communicate there? Yeah. So what I'm writing about is this idea that statehood in Afghanistan uh, has never really looked the way that outsiders, especially imperial powers like Americans, British, Russians, envision a complete state. Rather, since the uh, early modern period, since the 18th century, Afghan states have really been built on this idea of compromise between the capital, which is the city of Kabul, and the provinces. Mm -hmm. Um, It's been historically very, very difficult to directly administer the provinces from outside. So Afghan leaders uh, for several centuries uh, have really relied on local strongmen, uh, tribal leaders, elders, uh, and religious officials to do a lot of the, uh, to fulfill a lot of the roles that the Afghan state itself is not capable of filling. And whenever the Afghan state or whenever occupiers of Afghanistan have tried to expand the government to cover those roles, it's generally been met with pretty strong resistance. So I cover three periods in my thesis. Uh, The first one is just very broadly Um, everything before the Cold War. I have a chapter that looks at uh, Soviet and U.S. infrastructure projects in Afghanistan during the Cold War, which is also interesting because this is like the golden age of Mm -hmm. modernist mega projects. Soviet Union and United States are pouring millions and millions of dollars into this country trying to create these like huge mega projects that ultimately don't really serve much of a purpose because they envision this maximalist Afghan state expanding to fill that role. Mm -hmm. I'm also looking at the period of Taliban rule, which is, it's actually quite a brief period. It's 1995 is when the Taliban gets started. 2001 is when they're kicked out of power. But looking at the way the Taliban uh, conceived of their power in the country and the way that they tried to achieve uh, international recognition by imitating or at least parroting some of the functions and language of statecraft without necessarily filling it in a conventional way. I argue that the Taliban in a lot of ways doesn't function that differently from other historical Afghan regimes. Uh, And then I also look at the early American occupation period um, and a particular U.S. infrastructure project, Kabul to Kandahar Highway, uh, which in a lot of ways, it represents both this gesture towards creating a large state through infrastructure projects, which the uh, the Americans and the Soviets tried to accomplish in the mid-20th century. Uh, And it also represents a symbolic link between Kabul, um, the cosmopolitan capital where um, political power has traditionally been seated, and Kandahar province, uh, which is very rural. It's the heartland of the Taliban, and later it's the heartland of the insurgency. Mm. So it seems like kind of a lot of this conflict and maybe some of the frustration that like people have, have have sensed with this conflict over the years is coming from just like there's such different ideas of what a state should look like in all of these countries that are coming in here and trying to, you know, at least from a certain perspective, trying to make a positive difference. But at the end of the day, they're just, you know, trying to compare apples to oranges. And so it doesn't really work out in anyone's favor. I think that's absolutely right. And this is true not just for Afghanistan, but so many other countries that have really been 
built from the outside in. Mm. Uh, it's it's just not possible to do. And also, whenever Afghan rulers have historically tried to imitate or speed up those same processes that worked maybe in Western Europe, uh, it just hasn't had the same sort of success. So how did you kind of get interested in this whole um, time period and region and kind of looking deeper into the Afghanistan conflict? So I started being really interested in U.S. foreign policy at Reed. Uh, I took a couple of classes that really impacted me in the history department. Mm -hmm. American diplomacy, uh, which is a class that was taught by Josh Howe, probably the most influential for me. We read a lot of um, books, a lot of papers about American statecraft and the way that the Department of the Interior especially has sort of changed to include the rest of the world as <laughs> the U.S. interior in a sense and that influences oh, the no. way that the occupation of Afghanistan went down. And so ultimately, I started being interested in Afghanistan because I was living in San Francisco one summer. I was on YouTube looking up world's most dangerous roads because mm -hmm. I was bored. <laughs> I found the Kabul to Kandahar Highway. I got really interested in it. I bought Steve Cole's book, Ghost Wars, um, and started reading about the origins of the Taliban and the Afghan civil war. So if, if this, um, this road, this American infrastructure project that you talk about in your thesis is one of the world's most dangerous roads, it sounds like they didn't do a very good job. Well, they did a good job building the road, but that's kind of like trying to like build a dining room table in the middle of a burning house. Uh... Um, now, the thing is about the occupation of Afghanistan is for the first couple of years that the United States was there, the insurgency really was pretty marginal. Um, at that point, the Taliban had really consolidated enough power in the country that there weren't really competing groups. And the competing groups that did exist, mostly ethnic warlords, were actually mm -hmm. contracted by the U.S. government to become oh. regional power holders, basically just like they were during the Civil War um, and in earlier periods in Afghan history. These warlords are incredibly unpopular, mm -hmm. um, but there's still a lot of optimism in the new state. At this point, Afghanistan has already been at war for 20 years. Wow. That's one thing that I think we often forget is that before this 20-year war, there was another 20-year war. Oh, my gosh. So it takes a couple of years for this kind of resentment to build up, especially in eastern Afghanistan where the highway mm -hmm. is. This road is built in 2003 by Morrison Knudsen, which is the same infrastructure firm that built uh, the Hoover Dam in the United States. Oh. Um, mega projects is kind of their, uh, their specialty. Mm -hmm. And at the time, really, there was a lot of complaints from uh, Hamid Karzai's government in Afghanistan that the United States really wasn't doing enough to help Afghanistan recover. They were telling them what to do in terms of fighting the insurgency, but they weren't really providing like the basic structure, mm. um, reconstruction services that the country needed to survive and thrive. The U.S. built the road quite reluctantly. It's actually built oh. on top of the ruins of a U.S. road that was built in 1965, which is kind of supremely ironic. <laughs> um, and then eventually, because it is the road that links the capital to the heart of the insurgency, it becomes one of the battlegrounds where political authority is violently contested. Mm. It's super interesting because I think in a lot of people's minds, 
the Afghanistan conflict, at least from the American perspective, begins, you know, in 2001 um, when 9-11 happened. So it's so fascinating to hear you talking about, like, even back in 1965, you know, there were roads being built that um, were going to, like, be the site of of all of these crazy things that that happened that are more, you know, in the public consciousness. There's a lot of history to the history. <laughs> Absolutely. And our country has a very short memory. Like Afghanistan was one of America's biggest pet projects in terms of just the amount of money it spent in the country during the Cold War. And by 2001, that entire investment was squandered and almost completely forgotten. We forgot what didn't work. I guess that's why we need history majors to (laughs) keep us in check. (laughs) Yeah. What did your kind of day-to-day working on this thesis look like? The first semester... I didn't really do much. I had gathered my sources and written my abstract, but uh, my thesis advisor was pretty hands-off. Second semester came around. I hadn't written anything except for the abstract. He was like, that's okay. (laughs) Um, But by the way, uh, you're incredibly behind and you're going to have to write. Oh, no. You're going to have to write like 20 pages every two weeks if you want to (laughs) finish this thing. So uh, something in my brain just snapped and I wrote, uh, a 50 page first chapter in those first two weeks. And my thesis advisor wow. was like, don't ever hand me another one. of <laughs> And I was a little more conservative. They're like, I liked it better when you just had an abstract. Yeah. An abstract and a bad title was enough for him. <laughs> I, I think once, once I got just a lot of stuff on paper, narrowing it down and coming together with some more, concise and tailored chapters really became a lot easier and a lot more fulfilling. Mm, so it's better to kind of start off with too many words and then cut it down than to start off with not enough words and try and, you know, bulk it up close to the deadline. Exactly. As long as you're kind to your thesis advisor. <laughs> mm-hmm. And um, yeah, don't make them read 50 pages in two weeks. They have enough to do. So what kind of like sources were you working with this? Um, Because it must have been a little bit strange to be a history major, uh, like studying a time period that is still like having, you know, effects on day to day life, even now, like a couple years after your thesis has has been published. Yeah, it's especially for the recent stuff, Mm -hmm. been really interesting because Freedom of Information Act appeals keep getting filed, new documents about Mm -hmm. the war on terror and Afghanistan, um, and U.S. conversations between the Taliban um, and ambassadors in Pakistan. Like, this stuff is kind of coming out as I'm writing my thesis, which makes it really fascinating. Yeah. But I think that's also one of my biggest regrets about my thesis. I really relied on U.S. government sources. I really relied on United Nations documents mm-hmm. and uh, sources put out by other NGOs for the contemporary history um, and the Taliban regime stuff. And I didn't really leave enough room for Afghan sources, especially Afghan primary sources, I think. So if I was going to go back, mm-hmm. I would have included more of those. I probably also would have included more um more independent journalism because it's easy to forget Mm -hmm. the extent to which the mainstream news media, which I, you know, I really respect mainstream news media in a lot of ways, Mm -hmm. but in the aftermath of nine 11, there really wasn't much questioning of the invasion. Um, Mm. So I would have tried to have taken that perspective a little bit more. 
Yeah, that's why it's always good to kind of talk to people who have a little bit more perspective on their thesis because you can really start to see like, oh, these are the things that went really well and these are the things that, you know, going back, I would maybe try and look a little bit more from, you know, the other perspective and and have a bit more like diverse set of resources. Absolutely. Did you have any unexpected challenges while you were working on your thesis? Oh, man. I mean, once it got going, it was going fine. I think the biggest challenge for me was getting the ball rolling. And I've tried a lot of things. Uh, You know, fear kind of was the best motivator, at least initially. (laughs) After that, trying to like make sure that my time outside of thesis was like as packed as possible. And that's not hard at read because there's so much you're always doing. Oh, yeah. Um, so the, like the time you have to work on your thesis is precious. Um, mm-hmm. And in terms of like concentrating when you're actually working on it, um, you know, I tried a lot of things. I was drinking a lot of coffee. I was taking Ritalin. <laughs> I was binging ramen noodles. And eventually what worked was I just put on thunderstorm noises <laughs> on my headphones and just sat at my thesis desk for like eight hours. Just like, yeah, yeah, it's a thunderstorm. Yeah. Sometimes the simplest solution is the one that works. Absolutely. And sometimes that simple solution is thunderstorm soundtracks. (laughs) Depends on the person, for sure. Um, So what ended up being the outcome of your project? Um, 120 pages and an A (laughs) minus. I'm pretty proud of the finished product. It's a little all over the place, but I still think the argument that I made about the nature of the Afghan state and Taliban governance and some of the failures of U.S. foreign policy in Afghanistan. I still, I still think it's a unique take that can be backed up, uh, and I still stand by it. So mm-hmm. I really feel like I understand especially the Taliban so much better than I did when I started writing my thesis. Mm. You know, but I I think ultimately the most important thing I learned from my thesis was that a thesis is just a big homework assignment. And if you treat it like (laughs) you're going to change the world by exposing everybody to something new, Mm -hmm. it's it's like it's kind of just like conceited and self-defeating. It's like, yes, take pride in your work, but you're learning how to write something that's like tight, you know, something that's like. Yeah. Good document. Yeah. At the end of the day, the experience is more for you than for for anyone else. Mm -hmm. So kind of having this opportunity to, you know, like see the history playing out. Has that like changed any of your perspectives on the things you wrote about in your thesis? Or um, does everything still kind of you feel like it like holds true with with current events? Um, Things are playing out not so different from the way I saw them playing out and the way that Taliban is acting now that it's in control is mm-hmm. not that different from how we saw the Taliban acting in the uh, early 21st century. Yeah, I, I guess I'm not too surprised with the recent developments. I think the biggest thing that was a shock was in 2019 when I was writing my thesis there were talks going on between the Taliban and uh, certain members of um, opposition parties in the Afghan parliament. Uh, Those were being hosted by Russia and later by uh, Qatar. Um, And so what looked like was going to happen at that point 
was the Taliban were going to strike some kind of a deal with opposition parties as long as they could negotiate a U.S. withdrawal, which they probably could because the U.S. was not interested in staying at that point. Um, and as long as uh, the president of Afghanistan, Ashraf Ghani, um, went out, um, a lot of people saw Ashraf Ghani. A lot of people saw him as a U.S. patsy, honestly. I, I kind of feel like he got a bum rap, but uh, the Taliban especially really disliked Ghani. So kind of the most surprising thing was that we didn't really see these kind of peace talks turn into anything substantial. Yeah, well, it was pretty much guaranteed by the point that Trump started negotiating with the Taliban and um, mm. in the UAE and then immediately announced U.S. withdrawal date. It's like, obviously, there's no incentive to negotiate then because the U.S. is going to withdraw. What surprised everybody mm -hmm. was just how quick the takeover happened. And Trump, you know, basically nailed the coffin. Um, Biden gets a lot of criticism and he definitely deserves a lot of criticism. but the way the withdrawal happened is mostly due to Trump's decisions. Uh, but in a kind of screwed up way, this is also the best case scenario. It's a war that could have continued indefinitely mm -hmm. and power transferred peacefully. Mm. The Taliban is a pretty horrible organization especially in terms of the ways that they treat women and religious minorities um but if the united states had withdrawn and had thrown afghanistan back into another civil war that probably would have been a much bloodier path to the same outcome mm, so even though what we're looking at now of course seems pretty terrible um from like the 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 perspectives that we're getting it, it is kind of one of the better options that we had in front of us. Yeah. I mean, it's a, it's a bad outcome and we could have had better outcomes if we had been more serious about negotiating some sort of a stalemate with the Taliban, which would have meant concessions, but probably could have saved mm -hmm. uh, the Islamic Republic. Mm. So how has this kind of thesis experience affected your life after Reed? Has it like impacted any of your career choices or have any of the, the skills you got during that year come in like super handy in a career or internship move? Yeah. So at the point when COVID hit, I was working at university of Portland and I was starting to do mm -hmm. independent journalism. Uh, and COVID really changed a lot. Mm -hmm. I had been really hoping to transition into doing uh, journalism a lot earlier. Uh, that's something that I really got interested in from doing my thesis, from doing contemporary history. And then also, I feel like from realizing some of the shortfalls of my thesis and realizing that some of the investigative techniques employed by journalism lead to more nuanced um and more representative stories mm. so i think my thesis was influential in terms of getting me to think about political issues in a particular way and thinking about research in a particular way um since then i've left my job at university of portland and i've been spending more time uh doing independent journalism um and I think that's really a process that started with my senior thesis. Very cool. So how would you say that like 
the um the writing style and experience of writing a thesis versus kind of writing in this more like independent journalism context? How would you say that they're like similar or different? I I think you get a lot of leeway in your thesis. Obviously, nobody's grading you when you're like putting together like a piece for radio or um, use something for print media. But uh, I feel like writing my thesis, I had a lot more room mm-hmm. to be kind of like funny or ironic. Um, and I didn't feel quite as constrained by a word limit or a time limit. Maybe I should have, <laughs> but you know, yeah, I mean, thesis is like such a unique thing. And ultimately if you're going to be using it to get into grad schools, yeah, it should be uh, something that looks clean and professional, but in a lot of ways, it is also kind of an expression of your intellectual freedom as an undergraduate. Mm. Um, yes, you're preparing to uh, enter academia theoretically, but still all of the norms of academic writing, they don't all hold as fast to you as they would later on. Maybe some people would disagree with me on that, but um yeah, I saw the thesis kind of as a as a means of creative expression. I see journalism more as um more as work. Mm-hmm. Yeah. No, if it's something that you're going to get paid for at the end of the day, there's definitely different standards that you need to be like holding yourself to. Absolutely. Do you have any kind of a culminative last words for anyone who might be, you know, starting their thesis or about the read experience in general for maybe some of our prospies or freshmen who might be listening? Oh man, I feel like there's so much like any one of us could say about the read experience. <laughs> I guess yeah, it's a big one. <laughs> yeah, I feel like the thing I want to say about my thesis is it was a huge pain in my ass until I started giving everything to it. Uh, mm. And once I did, it kind of became my baby. Um, <laughs> and I, it's especially true of your thesis, but I think it's true of read academics in general. Again, I don't want to like mm-hmm. feed into pressure culture too much uh, because it definitely can be pretty harmful for a lot of students at probably most students at read, but at, taking classes seriously and spending as much time as I felt like I could Mm-hmm. and maybe a little more on my classes and on my thesis. I think it really improved my own self-confidence um, in my work ethic. And it really just made me feel better about being at Reed in a lot of ways. Yeah, no, I think definitely a huge part of work-life balance is about, you know, making it so that your work doesn't feel like work. And part of that is about, you know, putting in that time investment so that you're actually you like know what you're doing and you can, you can enjoy it instead of just feeling like, you know, you have to have something to turn in at the end of the day. Yeah. As if you're going to, you're going to be spending a lot of time on your work anyway, you might yeah. as well care. Might as well have fun. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> well, thank you so much for coming onto the podcast and for reaching out. Um, and this has been an awesome episode and uh, yeah. yeah, I think it'll be really cool to, to have a little bit of a reedy perspective on something that, has probably been occupying a lot of people's, you know, social media feeds and 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 news feeds for the the past couple months. Thanks so much for having me on. It's been a lot of fun. Thank you, Ethan, for taking on the challenge of contextualizing some of what we've been hearing in the news and sharing some stellar thesis tips along the way. 
And thank you as well to all of our listeners who took the time to tune into this episode. I hope you'll join us again to hear from more alumni and students about what it means to burn your draft. If you liked this episode, be sure to subscribe, check out our Twitter and Facebook pages, and rate us on Apple Podcasts. Burn Your Draft is a production of Reed College and the Center for Life Beyond Reed, created jointly by students, alumni, and staff. This episode was produced and engineered by me, Reed College student Amelie Andreas. Our executive producer is Seth Paskin, class of 1990, with technical advising from staff member Joe Janiga. Our project manager is Nate Martin, staff member and class of 2016. Music by Jack Salvucci, class of 2020, and podcast start by alumni Henry Gotchlik and Lillian Pham. This podcast was made possible by a gift from Seth Paskin.